Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is the author, Johan Hari. Now, I saw Johan talk at the InGoop Health Summit in London, and I think it was 2019. And I have to say, he is one of, if not the most captivating speaker I have ever watched. I have never seen a room be so transfixed by somebody. And I've ever since then, I've just wanted to get him on the podcast. But immediately after that talk, I got all of his books and I read them all, including Lost Connections, which I've recommended a few times on this show and which takes a look at the ways in which we look at depression and anxiety and why more and more people are being affected by them. It's a really interesting investigation into mental health that I recommend to anybody, whether you have your own mental health issues or whether you want to try and understand someone else's. But his new book, Stolen Focus, is one, as soon as I saw the press release that came out saying he was writing this book, I was like, put my hand in the air and said, I really want to A, read that book and B, talk about it with Johan. And not least because I had been pondering this idea that modern life was shortening our attention span, shortening our focus. And it was actually something I discussed during 26 Habits when I spent two weeks trying not to be distracted. I remember... I think I called the episode, Have I Forgotten How to Read? Because why is it so difficult for me to sit down and read a book? Why is it that I sit down and then half a page in, I'm up cleaning something or I'm looking at my phone? But Johan has has done a bit more than I did. He's traveled the world. He's spoken to neuroscientists, coders, psychiatrists, the people behind social media platforms, uh, behavioral psychologists, the lot to investigate why our attention has actually become a commodity in the various ways in which our focus is being stolen, basically from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep. 
So if you've ever been reading a book and realised you've been turning the pages but you've been daydreaming, thinking about something else and haven't taken a single thing in, if you've been watching TV and it's been seconds before you've reached for your phone or you've just felt that you can't focus, you'll want to hear Johan's insights, trust me. And just so you know, it isn't your fault or it, and it's not on you to fix. As you'll hear in this episode, and it's the thing that I took away from it and felt quite comforted by, If you've ever tried to limit your screen time and found it nigh on impossible, it's because there are hundreds, if not thousands of people, codes and strategies on the other side of your device trying to keep you hooked. You're just one person trying to fight a lot of factors on the other side of your phone. It's just maybe you don't realize that they're there, but that's the work that Johan has done and that's what he explains in the book. So in this conversation, we discuss why you're not a natural born multitasker. And actually, I know I thought that would be a really good thing for me to be a multitasker. And I've kind of glamorized and fetishized being someone who can do lots of things at the same time. But actually, the cost of switching from one thing to the other is really great. And your focus really isn't where you think it is. The way in which our devices are trying to steal more of our our attention. Yes, obviously, phones and social media are a big distraction and we have to really pay attention to what they're doing. He's also spoken to the coders who are now literally head in their hands saying, what have I done about the Frankenstein's monster they've created with social media and the various platforms that they've worked on? Why we can't just blame social media or digital devices, though? Our attention has been stolen in lots of ways, in lots of different forms for many, many years. Even the way in which we teach, even the way school is structured is something that works against our attention and our focus. He also explains how stress impacts our attention and the vicious cycle we're on trying to win it back. And also why clawing back our attention needs to become an act of attention rebellion. Think about that. That's a really interesting one. And so, so much more. I found this conversation with Johan fascinating. And honestly, I think that Stolen Focus is a book that everybody should read. If you have a device, if you have social media, that is a book that you should read because you should be aware of all of these things. Just aware. Not saying you have to be scared. Just aware. I'm sure you'll agree, Johan is an excellent storyteller. I mean, he was as captivating in this conversation as he was at that Goop Summit. And the book is an absolutely fascinating read. So I will, of course, link it in the show notes. But for now, please join me in welcoming. I'm so happy he's on the show. It's Johan Hari on The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome to the podcast, Johan Hari. How are you? I am. I was saying to you just before we came on air that thermostat here is broken. (laughs) So I can either be unbelievably hot or unbelievably cold until they fix it so I feel like I'm in one of those wanky spas where they like you know throw ice on you and then hurl you into a sauna apart from that I'm very cheerful yeah so you're you're probably having a a wonderful healthy experience (laughs) all Um, the toxins are leaching out (laughs) (laughs) I might try it myself I might just uh, make myself very very cold after this call see how it goes and then plunge myself into a warm bath Um, But you are a a writer and you are on this podcast to talk about something I actually addressed a couple of years ago on the show. Now, listeners, just to give you a good sense of the differences between Johan and I, I did a short episode on it where I said, have I forgotten how to read? Which was (laughs) kind of a clickbait into why can I not give my attention to a book? You have spent years investigating, interrogating and analysing this subject with the best and most competent experts in the world so as far as I'm concerned like if we really want to understand why we can't sit down and actually focus on a book anymore you are the person to ask because you have gathered all the information (laughs) together and you have you've really understood it and it's it's 
I mean, did you know that you were going to go on the, the journey that you ended up going on when you started? So it's so interesting because with every book I write, um, for me, it's got to be, there's a question at the start that I don't know the answer to. Because it takes such a long time to write a book. For me, it's got to be driven by genuine curiosity and actually a genuine need for a solution. And so for me, no, I, I mean, I had some sense but I remember it's something I actually put off looking into because I could feel my own attention was getting worse. I could see it happening to most of my friends. Um, and every now and then I would see sort of stray studies that you think, oh, there's a study in the US of college students that found the average college student now focuses on any one task for 65 seconds. In fact, the median amount they focused was 19 seconds. Um, a study of office workers that found the average office worker now focuses for only three minutes. But, you know, I thought, I kept convincing myself. It was a way of reassuring myself. Oh, doesn't every generation think that? You know, you can read monks a thousand years ago writing to each other going, oh, attention ain't what it used to be. <laughs> Um, that's not an exact quote from the monks, but that is the gist of what they said. I wish it was. Um, <laughs> but but um, but then there were a, a few things that happened to me that I'm happy to talk about, particularly a personal thing in, uh, with someone I love, where I thought, no, I have to actually, I think something might actually be going on here that is different, and I think I need to look into it. So as you say, I, um, I ended up traveling all over the world from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne, uh, and to places that don't begin with the letter M as well. I don't know why I suddenly went into alliteration <laughs> there. Um, and met the, the kind of leading experts and just places that have been really affected by this in different ways from a slum in Rio de Janeiro where attention had collapsed in a particularly disastrous way yeah. to a, a company in New Zealand that found an amazing way to restore their workers' focus. So yeah, it, it, did I know at the start? Definitely with my first book, I didn't know. I thought, oh, I'll go and interview a few experts. And then a few experts turned into more and more and more. And then I was like, oh, and suddenly I, you know, but that book was about addiction. And suddenly I find myself in the, you know, killing fields in Mexico <laughs> to look at that with, with uh, you know, drug lords who beheaded people. Or I found myself in Portugal where they decriminalized all drugs. With, with that book, I didn't know. Mm. With this book, I, I kind of knew by then, oh, okay, my method is I go on long journeys and I find stuff out. But I don't think... I don't think I thought I would find such definitive answers to what's happening to us. I was surprised by how much I was able to learn and how the picture is more complex and in some ways more solvable than, than I thought at the start. Because I think if you were just to say to someone, Stolen Focus, the name of the book and why we, we are no longer able to focus our attention spans, the way I described it when I did that um, mini podcast was, it's like my attention is a muscle that has atrophied or it's a muscle that um, is no longer being stretched. So it's very short. And I think everyone can um, probably align with this feeling of, oh, it's my personal liability. It's how I use the handsets, how I use my devices. And we sort of put it on the individual to correct the behavior in order to expand their attention. But in the book listeners, and you obviously know this because you wrote it, it's 12 reasons 12 causes of this stolen focus and for me there was a real crescendo it starts with the obvious that is in front of us every day and then when you begin to peel back the layers and you talk to the coders and you talk to the psychiatrist you realize there's a lot more at play that's so interesting because exactly like you and like almost everyone 
when I felt my own attention getting worse, I, I went into a real kind of negative spiral of thinking. I would go, oh, yeah, you're lazy, you're weak, you don't have willpower. I was very critical. In fact, I had a funny moment very early in the research for the book where I went to interview a man named Professor Roy Baumeister, who wrote a book called Willpower. He is the leading expert in the world on willpower. So I thought, oh, he's a good person to go and talk to. I'll go and talk to him. So I went and I went and sat down with him. And, very, and I said, so I'm thinking of writing a book about, you know, attention problems. And he said, do you know, it's, um, it's really funny you should say that because I'm just finding I can't really focus anymore. I just end up playing Candy Crush for hours on my phone. And I was like, wait a minute. Did you write a book called Willpower? <laughs> Aren't you literally the expert? I was like, fuck, if even he can't focus, <laughs> you know. So, and, and, and I, so I was very in this mode of blaming myself, thinking negatively about myself. And to be honest, when I looked at people I love, the younger people I love, sort of blaming them. Why aren't you strong enough to resist this? Um, but as you say, actually, when I start meeting all the leading experts, I start investigating the science of this. In fact, what I learned is our attention did not collapse. Our attention has been stolen from us. Um, and that requires two levels of response, right? One level of response is individual. There are all sorts of things individually we can do to protect ourselves. And I, obviously I tried some of them drastically and I've integrated a lot of them more moderately into my life and it has really helped. But we've also got to be honest with people. There's got to be another level of response because at the moment it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day. And then that person is saying, do you know what, mate? Uh, you might want to learn to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to probably go, all right. And I'm in favor of meditation. It's a good thing. Um, you might want to stop pouring itching powder on me and then I'll learn to meditate, right? Um, and, and actually what we've got to do is stop the forces that are pouring itching powder on us. And there's lots of practical ways we can do that. I know that can sound a bit weird and abstract, but there's lots of concrete examples I'm sure we'll get mm. to of how we can actually do that. But, but, but when you see that it's been stolen, and I'll give you just, um, just one example of, of obviously a lot I'm sure we'll get to, but um, I went to interview a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. He's at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in, in um, Cambridge in, in Massachusetts. And he said to me, there's one thing more than anything else that you need to understand about the human brain. You can only consciously think about one thing at a time. That's it. This is just a fundamental fact of the human brain. It hasn't significantly changed in 40,000 years. It ain't gonna change in our lifetimes. Your brain can only process one conscious thought at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for this huge delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. And what they studied, what Professor Miller's colleagues studied, is what happens when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time. So they obviously get people into labs, they do it and they monitor them. And what they discovered is when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time, you're actually juggling between tasks. And that comes with a really big cost. So think about something that seems small. Somewhere hidden behind my laptop is my phone, right? So while you're talking, you can well imagine, I could just reach behind for my phone and I could glance at my text messages, right? Feels like a tiny thing. I'm focused on you. Switch to the text message. I focus back to you. What? What's that? It's a second, right? But what they found is, in fact, this incurs something called the switch cost effect is the kind of fancy name for it. So I mean, I'm focused on you. 
I glance at the text and my brain has to completely refocus on the text because we can only think about one thing at once. I just go, oh, my friend Rob texted me. Oh, his mum's got out of hospital. Okay, that's got all sorts of implications. Then I have to refocus on you, right? Which again, takes a certain amount of brain power. Now, if you are constantly, what this is called switching, switching and refocusing, that comes with a whole series of really big costs. And there's a series of studies that look to how, I was amazed by how big that cost is because we so take it for granted. Give you, give you two, just two very quick examples of, of things that show how much that takes out of us. Um, th there was a, um, a study, Hewlett Packard, the company that make printers, shit printers that always break in my experience, but <laughs> Hewlett Packard, um, the words paper jam are like, when I arrive at the gates of hell, <laughs> the words paper jam will be written on those gates. But um, Hewlett Packard did this small study where they split a group of workers into two groups. And the first group was told, do whatever your task is for today and we're not going to interrupt you and the second group was interrupted with texts and emails not an unfamiliar thing to all of us and then at the end of it they tested the iq of these two groups the group that had not been interrupted scored 10 points higher on the iq test than the group that had been interrupted to give you a sense of what how big that effect is if you or me sat together and smoked a spliff and got stoned now our iq would go down by five points so being distracted has double the effect of getting stoned. You would be better off sitting at your desk, smoking a fat spliff and doing one thing at a time than sitting at your desk, not smoking cannabis and being interrupted all the time. That's how big the effect is. And um, there was a similar study, Carnegie Mellon University. They took 138 students and they split them into two groups. One, and they're both given the same exam. First group was told normal exam conditions. Second group was told, you can send and receive texts if you want. And you'd think the second group would do better because they could have cheated, right? You could have texted people for the answers. In fact, the group that could access their texts and was texting did 20% worse on average because it's the switch cost effect kicking in. If you're switching your brain between one thing, another thing, what was on Facebook? What did, what's on TV now? What's that person saying on Facebook? What's this on Snapchat? Wait, what? what's the person saying on Zoom? It jams up your thinking um, and we're all losing this 20% of our brain power, which is a huge amount all the time. The way Professor Miller put it to me is we live in a perfect storm of cognitive degeneration at the moment. Wow. And yet, <laughs> sorry, that took a moment. No, that wow was a very, yeah, it's true. That's the appropriate response, like, wow. Dramatic pause. But on the other hand, or at the same time, I don't know about you, but we definitely... I believe fetishize this idea of being able to juggle. If somebody can juggle things, they are looked up to in the workplace. Um, if somebody, you can interrupt them at any time, go to them with a problem, they have an answer. We, we think, wow, they're amazing. They're really great. But you're talking about that cost, the switch effect, the cost of the switching all the time. And are they really, should we be fetishizing that? Ability. You're so right. So we fetishize all sorts of things that the evidence shows wreck people's ability to focus and pay attention. We fetishize the person who answers the email within one minute, which in fact means they, do, they ruin their attention. There was a study by Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon that found that if you are interrupted, it takes you 23 minutes to get back to the same level of focus you had before you were interrupted. Most people never get 23 clear minutes. So you're constantly in this mode of dimi very diminished focus. So we fetishize that. We fetishize people who are who don't sleep very much. We go, oh, wow, what a tough person. They can get by on five hours. In fact, the evidence is lack of sleep 
wrecks your attention. If you stay awake for 19 hours, which doesn't feel so long, your level of attention deteriorates to the same level as if you were drunk. Um, we fetishize people who massively overwork. Um, in fact, there's lots of evidence that um, working extremely long hours ruins your attention. And we can talk about some of the solutions to mm. these problems as well. But you're totally right. We, 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 we've created a culture and I feel that in myself, like, you know, when I get to the end of a day of work, if I've worked to the point of exhaustion where I can't think anymore, I have a little rush where I go, good for you, Johan, you worked really hard today, rather than, God, you knackered yourself, you've, you, you're the last three hours, you weren't capable of thinking properly, you know, um, so there's all sorts of things where we've created a culture that militates against attention and focus. And we've got to understand what's really happening to us and put in place solutions both at an individual level and at a, at a collective level. So I, I know we're going to talk about a lot of the individual solutions, but I just want to give it, if it's okay, just a short yeah. example of a collective solution, because I think my worry about talking about a lot of this is a lot of people will hear me say, the switching is really bad for you, right? To give an example, one of the many examples in the book. And they'll go, most people, when they hear that, go, yeah, that's obviously true. And then if I go, well, I've got a solution for you, everyone, just switch less. That's experience for them, quite rightly, as if I went up to a homeless person in the street and said, mate, do you know what would make you feel much better would be if you went into that fancy restaurant over there and had a really nice dinner. And the homeless person, totally understandably, is going to go, screw you, they won't let me in, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, for a lot of people, that there's a lot of individual things we can do but for a lot of people that can only get them a very short way so i'll give you an example of a collective solution we can fight for that deals with this there's lots of them in france in 2018 they were having a huge problem with what they called le burnout which i don't think you need me to translate um and the french government did a commission to figure out what was going on and they discovered that 35 percent of french people felt they could never unplug from their phone or email because their boss could message them at any time of day or night and they'd get in trouble if they didn't reply, right? I remember when we were kids, I think you're younger than me, Emma, but when we were kids, um, the only people who were on call were the prime minister and doctors. And even doctors weren't on call all the time, right? Um, now, half the economy is on call, right? And, and this is completely exhausting. It means you could never fully give your attention to your kids. It meant you could never fully give your attention to having a bar. You, you're just never able to switch off. It's profoundly depleting. So the French government, under pressure from trade unions, introduced a very simple law. It's called the right to disconnect. And it just stipulates two things. You have a right to legally defined work hours. And you have a right when those work hours are over to not look at your email and your phone. So I went to Paris to talk to people about this. Big companies get fined. If, if, when I was there, Rent-A-Kill got fined 70,000 euros because they tried to get, they told off one of their workers for not answering an email an hour after he clocked off, right? So you can see how that's a collective change we can fight for that frees up individuals to make the changes they want to make anyway. Because there's no point giving people sweet self-help lectures going, you know, you'd feel much better if you slept more. You'd feel much better if you switched less and lots of other things if they literally can't do it, right? So we've got to collectively change the culture in ways that make it possible for us to free up our attention and focus. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's reminding me of a friend of mine who worked on a magazine and had an editor who would email as soon as they woke up. So five o'clock in the morning, the, the emails would start. Uh -huh. 
and there were two of them in sort of relatively prominent positions and they would both be on those emails and my friend would reply and the other person would reply at nine o'clock sitting at the desk once mm. they've got their coffee and my friend said after a little while I've created a terrible reality for myself because if mm. I try to switch to going to answering at nine o'clock when I get into the office I will look as though I'm underperforming mm. which is such a weird so there is this thing of you can create your own reality and how you interact with the media but equally should have come from on high or it, it helps if it comes from another source as well right or if the whole society is doing it that's why it creates a completely different norm if everyone's got the right to disconnect it creates it the truth is as an isolated individual you have some power some people will have some power as an isolated individual but banding together as groups and demanding these changes we have vastly more power and, and i think this is important because we can't continue on the current trajectory, right? In a way, I think we're sort of in a race between, or we can continue on the current trajectory, but it will be disastrous because these trends are accelerating and accelerating. With each year that passes, acts that require deep focus, like you mentioned reading a book, are declining. And there's a slight uptick during COVID, but other than that, they've been declining hugely. Um, and, and that has all sorts of disastrous effects. And my worry is, because not being able to focus is disastrous, again, at two levels. There's a, it's a disaster for you as an individual. If you can't pay attention, you can't achieve your goals as a human being, right? To achieve anything, you have to be able to sustain effort. You have to be able to filter out the noise and focus on one goal. And if you can't do that, if your life sort of dissolves into this hailstorm of 65 second little bursts it's very hard for you to do that so at an individual level a life without attention and focus is 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 really diminished but also at a collective level one of the things that happens when you can't pay attention is problem solving breaks down because problems require sustained attention that's bad enough at the level of an individual but that's happening at the level of the society as well right mm. and my worry is um if we don't deal with this soon, it can be a bit like when you gain so much weight that it's harder to exercise and it's harder to therefore lose weight. If our attention collapses, it gets continues to collapse. It will get harder and harder to take on the forces that are invading our attention, right? One of the things we need to do is take on the social media companies that have designed their products to maximally invade and raid our attention so they can make more money out of us. The, there's lots of things we can do as individuals, but the biggest solution, the most necessary solution, is we're going to have to take on those companies and make them adopt a different model, right? Um, but a society of people who are just addled will really struggle to, to win that fight. So I feel like we're sort of in a race between our deteriorating attention and a movement to take on those forces. Well, I think that's what underpins a lot of the, the chapters is we have to move en masse and and battle this and I think at the end it's the attention rebellion but you talk about the the people who uh, campaigned against coal mines and actually had effect like it, it involves people getting together and mobilizing to make this difference because the I mean I think when you listed the the personal wealth of the three top guys at Google oh my god it's incredible so I think Larry Page and this is this is not the wealth of Google this is the private wealth of Larry Page I think is worth 107 billion dollars google is worth more than every man woman and child in mexico or indonesia 
So these are really big forces with a lot of money, but I think it's important to understand where that money came from. There was a, and it very much related to what we were just talking about. Um, one of the people I interviewed a lot was an amazing, a really heroic person called Tristan Harris, who was a Google engineer for a long time and designed stuff that's actually in pretty much everyone's iPhone when he was really young. He was a sort of prodigy. And Tristan worked for Google for a long time and he worked early in the Gmail team. And one day, they were, they were trying to figure out how to get more people to use Gmail and specifically how to get people to use Gmail more throughout the day because they make more money that way. I'll tell you why in a minute. And one of his colleagues is sitting in the Googleplex and one of his colleagues one day had an idea. He said, why don't we make it so that every time someone gets a email, their phone just vibrates a little bit. And everyone said, oh, that's a good idea. Let's try and let's do it. And a week later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco and he just hears these vibrations all around him, almost like the chirruping of crickets. And he suddenly realizes, shit, we did that. And then he realized that's not just happening in San Francisco, that's happening all over the world. A while later, did a calculation. He figured out that decision was responsible for 11 billion interruptions to people's day every day. It's vastly more than that now, right? Uh, because that was when Gmail had a much lower user base. So I think we have to think about the, and that of course incurs all the costs from switching that we talked about, right? Interrupts you, you don't get back to the same level of focus for 23 minutes. Um, but but I think we have to think about um, the, the ways in which social media is designed to maximally um, invade our attention and, and more importantly, why? right? Because the solution comes from the why. There's all sorts of things you can do as an individual to protect yourself. You can't see it from here, Emma, but in the corner of my flat here, I've got a plastic safe uh, with a removable lid. You take off the lid, you put your phone in it, you put the lid on, you turn the dial at the top and you can lock your phone away for anything from five minutes to a week, right? Every day I put my phone in there for four hours to just get clear headspace to think. Um, now, again, I know that's because I have a privileged kind of job where you know I don't have a boss who's messaging me all the time um and I don't have children um but there's there's many methods and tactics like that that obviously I, I learned about from these experts and I go into in the book but we also have to understand the ways in which this machinery is designed to invade us you know an obvious example would be it makes you crave the rewards you receive from these sites one of the things I did for the book is spend three months completely without a smartphone or the internet. And after the initial haze of decompression and the relief, I felt this intense craving for likes, for rewards. It's like, I don't even think of myself as being particularly hungry for. If you're deprived of that, if, you, if you've had years receiving these thin, insistent signals from social media, that becomes part of how you prop up your self-esteem. It becomes part of how you think about yourself. Um, and when that's taken away, it's, it can be like, oh, what, what? it's like the world has gone silent, right? No normal social interaction floods you with hearts, right? <laughs> um, so that's one of many ways in which it's designed to do this. But the most important thing is to understand why it's designed to do that. And there was a moment this really fell into place for me, my ability to understand why it's designed this way. 
And it seems like a quite a small moment in a way. I was with Tristan Harris, the Google engineer I mentioned, who now speaks out against the harm these social media companies are doing, like lots of people at the heart of the machine. He's very uncomfortable with what they're doing. There was an amazing moment when a friend of his, another Google engineer, James Williams, Dr. James Williams, who I interviewed, he was speaking at a tech conference of basically the people who are designing the world in which we live who are themselves being hijacked by their own creations. It's like a Frankenstein's monster scenario. Mm. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world we're creating, please put up your hand. And nobody put up their hand. So Tristan said to me, ask yourself, when you open Facebook, it'll tell you loads of things. It'll tell you your friend's birthdays. It'll tell you someone tagged you in a photo. It'll tell you what you said on the same day 10 10 years before. There's something it won't do. There's no button that says something like, I'd like to meet up. Are any of my friends around and also want to meet up, right? Now, the minute I say that, everyone everyone listening will be thinking, oh, I'd like that. That'd be a handy thing to have, right? We we can all imagine that would make our lives better. Um, So that would be really popular with Facebook's users. why doesn't Facebook provide it? If you follow the trail from that question, I think you begin to see um, why they're invading our attention and the start of the path out. When you open Facebook, Facebook makes money in two ways, or every social media, all the big ones, makes money in two ways. Obvious, first one is obvious. You scroll down, you see ads. People don't need me to explain that. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on Facebook is scanned and sorted by Facebook to build up a profile of who you are. So let's say that you like, I don't know, Kylie Minogue and Donald Trump. And you say in your um, direct messages to your mum that you've just bought nappies. Okay, so Facebook's figured out you're probably a gay man. Uh, No disrespect to the straight fans of Kylie. I'm sure there are some. Uh, you're, You're probably right wing. And you've got a baby because why else would you be buying nappies, right? Now imagine they've got tens of thousands of data points like that. They're building up a really detailed picture of you and they're building up that picture of you so they can sell it to advertisers, right? You're not the customer, you're the product they sell to advertisers. So advertisers can target you very specifically because if you're selling, if you're uh, you sell nappies. You don't want to. You don't want to have an advert that I see. I'm not going to buy any nappies. I don't have a baby. You want to go directly to the people who've got babies, right? So, every moment you scroll, Facebook gains more data about you to make that profile more detailed, which is how they make their money. So, every time you close Facebook, every time you put your phone down, that revenue stream disappears. So, their entire business model is about getting you to keep scrolling as long as possible. This isn't some conspiracy theory. This is what they say. Sean Parker, uh, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook said, we designed it to maximally harvest people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's happening to our kids. Those were his words, right? Once you understand that, you can see why there's no button that says, I'd like to meet up with my friends. Are you guys around? Because if you push that button and it said, oh, Kathy's around the corner. I'll go for a coffee with Kathy you would both close Facebook and look into each other's eyes and talk to each other, right? Now, that's great for you. That's great for Kathy. That's a disaster for Facebook, right? Mm. Because they lose money. So all of their engineering power, the best engineers in the world, all of their money, all of their algorithms are built around one thing. How do we keep you scrolling, 
right? How do we keep Emma looking more and more and more? So it learns your habits. It learns your techniques. It learns, it tries different things. For me, it would learn if you want to keep Johan scrolling, put one picture of a shirtless man, put one political lecture, put another picture of a shirtless man, you know, and put a clip from Coronation Street last night. Now, what what your, what will keep you scrolling will be different, right? It might be exactly the same, who knows? But, you know, um, the the so it's learning you and it's learning how to maximally manipulate you. But the, the most important thing is so that it doesn't have to work that way. And we can talk about different ways social media can work where we can have all the benefits of social media without it being designed to maximally invade your attention. Well, I do want to ask you what that would look like, mm. but just that story that you just told reminded me of something else you said in the book about when you were in a cafe and you were listening to two guys who were clearly on a first date. And it was the impact of social media on how it's affecting even something as basic as conversation and small talk. And that you said you were essentially hearing them parrot Facebook statuses to each other. It was not a conversation. It was, here's information about me, not, oh, so, can I get to know you? A- this is such a depressing experience. I was sitting in a place called Cafe Heaven in Provincetown in Cape Cod, which is where I went to be off the internet for three months. And I was sitting there and my attention was sort of, it was quite early. So my attention was only really repairing a bit. And I was reading, pretending to read David Copperfield by Dickens. Okay. And I'm sitting there and these two guys came in. They're, they're in their mid twenties. And I, it was very obvious they'd met on an app just from eavesdropping on them as they'd obviously never met before. And, um, and it was really fascinating because they spoke for a long time, like two hours, and they never asked each other any questions and then listened to the response. So there was one point where one of them said, mentioned in passing that his brother had died. And the other one didn't even say, I'm so sorry, what happened? He just carried on talking about himself. It was, it was literally like if they had just separately sat in their own, sat in their own rooms and read out their own Facebook status updates and just taken turns doing it, the conversation would have been exactly the same. So you can see, one of the things we have to see is you have to, you have to take care what technologies you expose yourself to, because over time, your consciousness will come to resemble those technologies. So technologies based on um, narcissistic self-display and anger, which is partly part two of the ways that Facebook keeps us scrolling and Instagram and other apps, um, if you spend a long time plugged into machinery based around self-display, monologuing, and anger, and we can talk about why it promotes anger if you like, because I think that's really important and has a terrible effect on our attention, that doesn't go away when you switch off, put down the app, right? That shapes how you think about the world. That becomes, I mean, we've all had that experience where even think about something as trivial as you go to a music concert. And about a third of the audience, I was, I was at the last night of Elton John's residency at Caesars Palace in Vegas. It's an incredible thing. And a third of the audience did not fucking look at Elton John. They're, they're, they're filming him and staring at the screen. And you want to grab their phones and throw it against the wall and go, no one wants to see your shitty video of Elton John. There's a million <laughs> videos of Elton John that are done by much better people than you on the internet, right? But what's happened is that that this, is con- this, this way of looking at the world has contaminated their consciousness, right? Partly they want to make other people jealous. They want to show, look, I'm at the Elton John concert. You're not at the Elton John concert, right? Um, it, it, they, it, 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 you end up cannibalizing all your experiences in order to display them. But what that means is you're not present at your experience. They didn't have the experience of seeing Elton John 
and one of the greatest performers in the world perform. They, they literally didn't see it. They were there and they didn't see it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we can see that inability to be present in so many places. And it's partly, there's many things going on, of course, it's not just this, but it's partly that this way of being your whole way of thinking begins to be shaped like the technologies you use over time. And um, this is why reading books is restorative for your attention, but more deeply restorative for your mind, because what a book says, the kind of hidden message in, in any book is, you should think about one thing for a good few hours. You should think about what the inside of other people's heads are like and realize oh, that, other per that person's got a complex consciousness just like me, right? that's a very different kind of hidden message to the message of Instagram, which is what matters is whether you look good and whether people immediately like how you look, right? You can see how I want my consciousness to be more like a novel and less like Instagram. Mm. You know? And even just you talking about the concert there, I remember distinctly going to see Aerosmith when I was, I think I was 11, mm. the pump tour. It was amazing. And I remember having that first feeling of, I wish my brain could record this and I would have access to these video files at all time. And yet I'm the same. I don't record when I go to concerts because you're, you're not seeing it. It's how it's, it's extremely bizarre how you have that want. Oh, wouldn't it be great if I could access this whenever I wanted to, but it means that you then don't pay as much attention when it's happening right in front of you. Totally. And Emma, so of course, weirdly, it's just, um, it's just saying that I can't, I can't, uh, you've vanished. I can't see you. Um, and it's because someone else has, I use my friend's Zoom and someone else has signed. Oh, there we go. I clicked and I've got it back. Great. Okay. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, well, I had an extreme moment about this uh, when I went to Graceland with my godson, Love who was obsessed with Elvis. Um, I mean, it's a, a longer story, but I'll just tell you the, the kind of headline bit, which is we went to, when you arrive at the gates of Graceland, um, there's no one to uh, physically show you around anymore. This is even before COVID. They give you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad guides you around and says, tells you about the room you're in or whatever. And in every room, um, there's a digital representation of that room on the iPad. So we're kind of walking around me and my godson and everyone is just staring at their iPad, right? It's people have traveled thousands of miles and they're just staring at their iPad. Apart from occasionally, they'll take out their own phone to take a selfie, right? That's the only exception. So people are in this place, but they're like, like at the Elton John concert, they're not even looking at it. And we get to, or not in an unmediated way, and we get to the jungle room and there was this couple, Canadian couple next to us. And the jungle room was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. It's kind of a kind of fake jungle. And the man turned to the, his wife and said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I sort of laughed out loud because I thought he was. And then she starts just swiping, and I turned to him and I said, "But sir, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. You could just turn your head, because we're actually in the jungle room, right? You don't have to look at a digital representation of it. We're literally there." Um, but of course, they just thought I was mad, right? So you can see how this 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 inattention which comes from a whole range of these 12 causes has polluted us to such a degree that we can't see the things that are right in front of us. Many of us can't see the things that are right in front of us. And it doesn't even seem odd to not be present with the things that are right in front of us. So 
yeah, I, I think you're right that there's this that there are these very deep causes that we've now the temptation is to go, what's wrong with that asshole, right? To get, to get into the kind of blame, either the self-blame, call yourself an asshole, or blame the other individual. But I don't think that's right, because it's happened to all of us, right? If you're struggling to focus and pay attention, no. This is happening to almost everyone in the society. It's particularly happening to our children. And obviously the last quarter of the book is about what's happened to our kids and what we can do about that. And there's many causes in the changes that have happened in childhood, many of which actually have nothing to do with technology. I was surprised to learn that actually. I don't, I don't think, based on the evidence I saw, that technology or these specific aspects of the technology um, are the big, is the biggest cause, actually. Mm. I don't think it is. But, but the... Um, and and I think it's also important to stress because it can get we can get into a mode where we sort of think, oh, is it? It's about a debate. I know some people are going to call my book anti-tech, right? And to me, it's not about being pro or anti-tech. It's about saying what tech, using what business model, working in whose interests, right? Because at the moment, the technology we use is designed, literally deliberately designed, to maximally invade and hack our attention. But the technology could just as easily be designed to heal our attention if, it, if we had a different business model. And those different business models exist and we could force them to adopt them if we wanted to. I think I've often wondered this. If we knew, if, say, the internet was created as a product and went through all the kind of testing that it would have to go through and, and all the regulations and what have you, it would not exist as it does today. Because someone mm -hmm. would look at it and say, that that's just ridiculous it's lawless there's there are no rules it's it, you we cannot put that out there it's dangerous but because it's happened so gradually and i think when mm -hmm. the internet first began no one really understood its capabilities or what what could come from it although we've all seen terminator 2 judgment day so we should have a clue <laughs> but i would be very happy if arnold schwarzenegger as he was in terminator 2 came to fact it'd be well worth skynet taking over the world and destroying everything if i get arnie just for an hour right it has to you be Arnie I, as he was there. Yeah, you and I need to take this conversation offline. I'm a big, I'm a big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. Oh my God, he's so hot. Um, but uh, trying to focus now. So you've stolen oh yeah, my sorry. focus. If, you, um, if we, yeah, if, if you try to sell the internet as it exists now, or social media as it exists now as a product, it would just not have got through the appropriate moral testing, business testing, any of that. And so I find that really... I find that really bizarre. You would almost think that we would be policing it as it exists now. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And, you know, drugs get tested before they go. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. On the market, right? And I think, when I think about that, I think a lot about... Um, Dr. James Williams, the former Google engineer, he said to me, the axe existed for 1.4 million years. 
before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The web has existed for less than 10,000 days. Mm. We can absolutely change these things. But I think there's a sort of analogy from the recent past that might help us to think about this. So older listeners will remember, right into the, well, into the 70s, it was quite common, well, it was the norm for people to paint their homes with lead paint. And right into the 80s, I remember the smell of it, um, leaded petrol was very common. And then it was discovered, they actually knew, right, going back to the 1920s, this, but the companies denied it. And then eventually by the 70s, it couldn't be denied anymore. It was discovered that lead absolutely destroys your attention. It's catastrophic for children's attention in particular. It's one of the reasons why there was a huge explosion in children with attention problems. Um, it actually can, it, it has a disinhibiting effect it's, uh, for some people. So it's actually one of the reasons why violence went up as well at that time. So what did we do? We said, this harms people's attention, ban it, right? Now you'll notice I'm in a flat that's been painted. You're in a home that's been painted. I can see from my window, there's some cars going past. They've got petrol in them. We still have paint and petrol. It's just not leaded paint and petrol. In the same way, we, in order to protect our children and protect ourselves, I would argue, and more importantly, the people who know loads about this, the, the leading experts, the people who designed these systems, a lot of them now say, the thing we've got to do is the equivalent of banning lead in petrol, right? Mm -hmm. So go back to that business model, right? We've got a business model that has to invade your attention, right? It doesn't matter if the person running Facebook is a really nice person or a horrible person. The business incentive is one thing. You've got to keep people scrolling, right? That's it. That's, that's the business model. They've got to invade our attention. But so what Asa Raskin, who's a kind of key figure in the history of Silicon Valley, his dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. He designed it. And Asa invented something that transformed how the internet works. I can talk, talk about it if you want. But he said, the solution is, the first step in the solution is we have to ban that business model, right? We just say, you are not allowed to have a business model that is based on surveilling me, learning how to hack my attention, and selling my attention to the highest bidder. No, this is inhuman. It's destructive to the society. It's destructive to individuals. We will not let you do it anymore. And I said to him, but, but okay, and him and lots of other people, okay, what happens the day after we ban it, right? Do I open Facebook and it just says, sorry, we've gone fishing. And he said, no, of course not. What would happen is Facebook and other social media companies would have to adopt a different business model. And that has huge implications for our attention. And the other business models are pretty simple. One could be subscription like Netflix, right? Netflix, um, we, we could pay 50 cents a month or whatever, 50 pence a month to be on Facebook. Uh, we all know how subscription works. Or it could be, think about, you know, everyone listening to this, you are pretty close to a sewer, right? Before we had sewers, you had shit in the streets and people got cholera. So together we all funded the building of the sewers and we all own the sewers together. Um, it might be that just like we own the sewer pipes, we want to own the information pipes together. It might be we want to have public ownership independent of the government, right? Whatever this different business model is, and the reason we would want that is because we're getting the sort of attentional equivalent of cholera, right? But, but the, 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 um, the reason we, that's so important is because if we make that change, we're not the product anymore, we're the customer. So instead of Facebook figuring out how do we hack Emma and sell her to advertisers, Facebook suddenly has to ask a very different question. What does Emma want, right? Oh, 
Emma wants to be able to pay attention. Okay, so every time we send her a link, let's warn her that you think it'll take a few seconds. For most people, it takes 23 minutes, right? Oh, let's invent a button that tells her where her friends are, right? Instead of Facebook becoming a kind of vacuum sucking up your focus, it could become a trampoline for your focus, sending it back into the world, better equipped with the things you want, right? But that can only happen if we change the business model. And they're not going to do that on their own, right? As we know from all the leaked documents that have come out, they know they're doing loads of harm, you know, but they're making money out of it. That will only happen if we pressure them, if we make them do it, if we band together and make them do it the way, you know, feminists, in, if you think about the feminist movement, just like women were treated like absolute shit for thousands of years, and then a generation of women said, you know what, we're not going to take this anymore, and fought and fought and fought, and of course still have to fight, um, and made incredible changes, just like women had to re have a movement to reclaim their bodies and their lives I would argue we need a we all need a movement to reclaim our brains to reclaim our minds but that requires a different disposition of this we need to get out of this oh what's wrong with me i'm weak i'm lazy we are and to start fighting the forces that are doing this to us we are not medieval peasants at the court of king zuckerberg begging for a few little crumbs of attention from his table we are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back if we want to that's really powerful because <laughs> it is because I think is this idea that you don't think it's happening and when you were talking about the ways in which we could put the warning on Facebook for example now I remember the Marlboro red packets and thinking how <laughs> cool they were because when I watched Grease the musical when I was I don't know 10 years old or something there were two things I wanted to do smoke a cigarette and chew bubble gum because I'm, <laughs> I'm susceptible that's how susceptible I am to that kind of messaging but so, you know, the Marlboro red packet with the arrow shape and everything. But I was horrified when I saw a packet of cigarettes recently. I don't smoke, so I don't see them very often. And when I saw that they actually put on there, in no uncertain terms, this is going to kill you. And oh, here's a way in which it might do it. And it's a very graphic picture of something that has been excavated from somebody's lung or chest or what have you. And so but they still sell cigarettes. People still smoke. Are we, do you think that in terms of attention loss and the addiction that we have to these, that there are, it's going to be difficult for some people to see those warnings and think, yeah, I'll deal with it later. Like we've all been, to, we've, I'm sure we've both been told to sit up straight because it'll ruin our <laughs> posture. And I'm sure we've both thought, oh, not now. I'm, I'm still young or whatever it might be. You just sort of. Totally. So the, yeah, no, you're right. The warnings are one small aspect of a bigger picture, but the most important thing about it is when the incentives for those companies are different, at the moment, all the engineers, like we say, are figuring out how to hack you and keep, yours, keep you scrolling. When there's a different business model, the job of those engineers is not to do that. The job is, what does Emma want? How do we make Emma's life better? How do we want her to carry on subscribing to our product? So they ha Or how do we serve the public if it's public ownership? That's a completely different way of thinking. So it, that the the warnings just become one of a whole array of ways in which um they can begin to heal these these effects i'll give you another example um of the way in which it currently invades us and how it can change so there's this very unfortunate effect uh of this so they want to keep you scrolling and there's a quirk in human psychology uh, the fancy term for it is negativity bias the way negativity bias works is very simple. Everyone will have experienced it. If you've ever been driving on the motorway and you pass a car crash, 
you will have noticed you stare longer at the car crash than you stare at the pretty flowers across the road, right? When we see something that is angering or frightening, we will stare at it longer. Um, this is true. This is very deep in humans. Ten-week-old babies will stare longer at an angry face than a happy face. And it seems to be, for a kind of obvious reason in our evolution, um, our ancestors who were more alert to danger survived longer and got to be our ancestors. And the ones that were just staring at the flowers got eaten, right? I mean, that's a slightly <laughs> crude way of putting it, but you know what I mean? So that's just a quirk of human psychology, but that has a horrific effect on the internet. But what it means is the algorithms are scanning to figure out how do I keep Emma scrolling? And one of the things they discover, this isn't the intention of Facebook, this isn't their goal, but they discover if I send you things that make you angry and upset, you will keep scrolling longer. So imagine this is a disaster at a personal level. Imagine two teenagers who go to the same party and get the same bus home. One teenager does a Facebook status update where they go, that was such a nice party. Everyone looked great. They were lovely. The other teenager goes, Karen was a right slag at that party. And I saw Bob and he was a twat. And, you know, and um, everyone stank a shit, right? So I've been, <laughs> I've been sitting with my niece going through her st Facebook status update. So or her various Snapchat and stuff. So I have, I'm plugged in to how they talk, right? Um, what will Facebook select? The first Facebook status update, it's not going to put it into many feeds because who's going to keep scrolling over that? But the one that will anger them, loads of people at the party will go, you bitch, why did you say that? What are you talking about? Karen's not a slag. You can see how that gets far more engagement, keeps people scrolling far longer, right? If it's enraging, it's engaging. So Facebook will feed it to you. Now that's bad enough at the level of teenagers going to a party. That's been happening to the whole society, right? It's one of the reasons, not the only one, it's important to stress that, but one of the reasons why we've had this explosion of polarization, anger, rage, uh, you know, I don't want to mention the name of Donald Trump, but I don't need to remind everyone, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, when we change the incentives, that no longer, the, the app no longer has a, 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 an incentive to anger you. In fact, it has an incentive to not anger you because it keeps you scrolling, but it makes you feel like shit, right? Mm. So you can see how that profoundly changes the dynamic when we, when we do that. Um, so I, I think we need to, engage with 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 those things very deeply along with kind of the 11 other big causes that are, that are invading your your attention and focus well just i know we don't want to linger on him too much but um let's just discuss donald trump because actually a, a bit <laughs> that's like a sentence the, you never want to hear let's discuss donald trump yeah but in terms of um the the role of social media and cambridge analytica and i think was it one of in the book and i can't remember the name you're so good with names but um who said um, if things carry on the way that they are, we can manipulate people and make them think a certain way. And it was that it was that finding that was exploited, which then yeah. kind of, as you say, led to the polarization, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, you know more than I do about this, the Cambridge Analytica, essentially, it was focusing on the people who could be. Well, was it a form of radicalization? It was just putting things in there that they finding the people who they could manipulate and get to vote. So there's lots of ways you can do it. Sometimes I think it's easier to see it when you look at somewhere that we don't know as much about because, you know, the US and Britain are so close to us. So I, I really saw this in Brazil in a way that was um, really disturbing and in a way a kind of vision of where we're headed if we don't get a handle on this stuff. So I have a friend called Raul Santiago, who I got to know when I was writing my book about the war on drugs. Um, Haul um, was born in, a, in a, a, one of the poorest slums in Rio. It's called Complex de Alamao. 
and it's an amazing place complex to Alamau. It looks like a kind of Italian city after a nuclear war because these favelas, these slums are literally built on the hills just by the people who live in them with no government support or anything. So, and they have this slightly weird thing in Rio where the poor live in the hills that look down on the city and the rich do live down below, which is different to how we, you know, poverty works in a lot of other parts of the world. Um, so you've got this incredible slum that kind of climbs up into the hills and Ha'ol grew up with his friend Fabio um, and, and um, they, they would, they would fly kites at the very top of complex to Alamau. So you can see out over the whole of Rio. You can see down towards Copacabana beach. You can see the statue of Christ, the Redeemer. It's kind of amazing thing to see. And they're grown up and they know, okay, we're poor kids. And in Brazil, the government, the police can just kill poor kids and really regularly do. Um, you know, that their favela is often just tanks ride into their favela and just, shoot kids and there's never any accountability for it uh, and it's terrible but Fabio was one of those kids who had all's best friend just de absolutely determined to get out you know he had a disabled sister who wanted to help and he was constantly doing he was amazingly good at maths and he and he would was constantly doing little entrepreneurial things he would persuade the bars to sell him their disused bottles so he could sell them on for a markup to the recycling plant he was just an amazing kid and when he was 15 he was shot dead by the police and Ha'ul thought, I can't take this, the police just murdering everyone or being able to murder any of us and there being no accountability. So he set up a Facebook group called Paparetto, which shares videos that people shoot on their smartphones of the police murdering people. Like a rough equivalent would be Black Lives Matter. And this became a huge phenomenon on the internet in Brazil on Facebook. And this sounds like a great, and is a great story about the power of social media. People who had no voice to speak out against authority, exposing power. But at the same time that Facebook was making it possible for Ha'ul to do that, the algorithms were prioritizing things that anger and enrage people. And that had a different effect. So there's a, a there was at the time a senator called Jair Bolsonaro, an extremely right-wing senator who had been completely marginalized. He was, because he was so disgusting and extreme. I mean, he said in a debate about rape in the Senate that the, the female senators he was arguing against were so ugly, no one would bother to rape them, so they shouldn't worry. They're not, the phrase he used was, they're not worthy of being raped. He praised people who under the dictatorship had tortured and murdered dissidents. He, um, he said he'd rather his son died than become gay. He said people who lived in the favelas like Complex de Alamao were not even good for breeding and should go back to the zoo. I mean, really extreme. Oh so he was completely marginalized. And then the social media algorithms on YouTube, because it works in the same way, and Facebook, start picking him up. It turns out people get really angry when they see Jair Bolsonaro's videos. And he starts getting promoted by the algorithms. He becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. He then ran for president, pledging to crack down on places like Complex de Alamao, even more than they'd already been cracked down on. He won the election. He's now the president of Brazil. When COVID arrived, he said that uh, people should stop whining like bitches about COVID and take it like a man, right? Uh, he then got COVID. Um, uh, one of the last times I spoke to Ha'ul, um, Bolsonaro had kept his promise. He sell, sent a helicopter over Complex to Alamau and they were just shooting people in Complex to Alamau. Ha'ul was trying to protect his children. He was terrified. I'm really afraid for his safety. Um, now, you can see in that story where that anger takes it. It's easier to see because we're so close to Trump. He's so mm. in our heads. 
we're so close to other things like Brexit that it's harder. It's harder for us to get a handle of it. And I want to be clear, I'm not. That's not the only reason why Bolsonaro won. That's not the only reason why Trump won. But when, or, or, or indeed that Brexit happened. But at, at, at Bolsonaro's election night rally, his supporters, their chant was Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. They knew they'd won because of Facebook. And Facebook's own internal um, research has confirmed that they're supercharging forces like this. In fact, Facebook's own internal research found that a third of all the people who joined neo-Nazi groups in Germany, a country with some experience with Nazism, um, had joined because Facebook's algorithms recommended they join, right? So you can see, um, you can see that effect playing. Now that's playing out at a personal level. By the way, anger destroys your attention. Also, um, and I can talk about how if you want, also, um, this connects to another thing that's really destroying our attention, which is stress. So stress ruins your ability to focus and pay attention. Stress puts you into a state. There's an amazing woman called Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who's now the Surgeon General of California, the um, highest medical officer in the state, um, who explained this to me really well. And this is true for big stress like, you know, Bolsonaro or Trump becoming president, but it's also true of much smaller, much more closer forms of stress. So imagine you were walking down the street and you got attacked by a bear. Um, in the weeks and months afterwards, something will happen to your attention. Your attention will flip into a state called vigilance. And vigilance, it's not where you're not paying attention, but what your attention has flipped to is you're paying attention to possible dangers all around you so you're scanning the horizon for risk and danger right so it's not not attention but it's it's a different form of attention now imagine you're attacked by a bear again you go into a state called hypervigilance where you're just constantly scanning for risk now lots of us because we're under constant stress are living in states of vigilance or hypervigilance i mean think about something as basic as if you don't have that much money you have to be constantly scanning for god if my child loses his shoe what are we going to do if the washing machine breaks? If I break the washing machine, what are we going to do? You can see how that stress profoundly degrades your attention. Everything that increases stress degrades attention. And everything that reduces stress reduces attention. So we've got to be, so that's why I talk in the book about lots of ways we can reduce people's stress. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris has done amazing work on this. This is why stressed children are, I mean, she did an amazing study that found kids who were going through four severe forms of stress were 32.6 times more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than kids who were not going through those severe forms of stress. So you can see how these things are really, and of course, a world where everyone is being amped up to be angry all the time, and that's creating actual real forms of danger in the world, um, that's going to be a more stressed out society, right? And that's why, as you said earlier, it's not just a case of putting on some plinky plonky music and doing a bit of meditating. That's not the fix. We have to activate and be involved in a much bigger change other than just the ones that we can make in our own private and personal lives. Exactly. Both those levels are really important. The individual changes are really important and the collective change is really important. And I know when I say that, it can sound a bit uh, remote from people, but when I think about it, the thing that helped me to think about it is to think about my grandmothers. So my, I'm 42, I'm nearly 43 or 43 in a month. My, my grandmothers were the age I am now in 1963. And I think, and I loved my grandmothers. They were incredible women. And I think a lot about them. And I, 
I think about what my grandmother's lives were like in that year. So my Scottish grandmother was a working class woman. Her job was to clean toilets. She was in a poor Scottish tenement. And my Swiss grandmother was living in a wooden hut on a mountain in Switzerland. Neither of them were allowed to have bank accounts because they were married women. Um, both of them could be legally raped by their husbands. Um, my Swiss grandmother needed written permission to work outside the house from her husband or to travel outside the country. Um, it was in practice legal for both of them to be beaten by their husbands because the police never did anything about domestic violence. My Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote. They had both left school when they were 13, even though the men in their family stayed on longer because no one gave a shit about women getting to vote, getting to learn anything. Um, in the entire world, there was no country, no big company, no police force that was run by a woman. And there never had been, right? Apart from freakish exceptions like Elizabeth I or something, monarchies, right? And I think about how daunting it must have seemed to them, the idea that women could achieve any form of freedom or control over their lives, given all of that. And then I think about my niece, who's 17. So my Swiss grandmother, she loved to draw. And when people saw her drawing, they were like, shut up, why are you doing that? Get back to the kitchen. My niece, she loves to draw. We're like, you should go to art school. You're really good at this, right? Even the most crazed sexist would not say, I mean, if someone said it about my niece, that we should go back to what my grandmother's experienced, you would regard them as mentally ill. If they said it should be legal for her to be raped, she shouldn't be allowed to have a bank account. She shouldn't be allowed to vote. I mean, even crazy sexists don't say that, right? Um, how did that change happen? Like we were saying, it, it didn't happen because men decided to hand it down. It didn't happen because someone else solved the problem. It just happened because ordinary women banded together and just said, enough of this shit. We're not going to have our lives ruined in this way, right? And obviously that's a fight that still has to go on. And I'm aware that it's very aggravating for a man to mansplain this. But that that we are all the beneficiaries of all sorts of changes that seem impossible at the start. And then just we fight for them, you know? So I slightly jokingly at the end say we need an attention rebellion, um, but we do. And I don't mean exactly on the model of extinction rebellion because they do some things that I think are unnecessarily aggravating to people, but there's, 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 um, although there's lots of things they do that are really good as well. Um, I do think you're right. I'm very wary of, although I give lots of personal advice because there are, the evidence shows there are lots of things we can do the plinky plonky music and the meditation i'm in favor of meditation mm -hmm. and i'm not against plinky plonky music um but, but for me you know there's this concept called cruel optimism which is invented by a french historian called lauren berlant cruel optimism is where you take a really big problem with big causes in the way we live the way the society lives like obesity addiction attention problems and you say to people great news i've got a solution for you all you have to do is turn on this app and listen to the plinky plonky music for 10 minutes a day and everything will be fine. And it seems like optimism because you're saying I've got a solution for you, but actually it's cruel because the truth is it might give a little bit of relief and that's worth doing, but it's not going to solve the problem. And then the individual thinks, oh, well, there's something really wrong with me because I've done the thing you're meant to do. And look, I still can't focus and they blame themselves. Um, and the alternative to cruel optimism isn't pessimism. That would be a disaster. That's what the forces want us to do. This alternative to cruel optimism is true optimism, which is where you scale the solution to the size of the problem. You level with people about what's really causing the problem. 
and together we build realistic solutions, right? Because I'd love to be able to say to people, do the following three little things and everything will be fine and all your kids' attention problem will go away. And, but that's lying to people, right? Now, there are lots of things you can do that will make it a bit better. Um, but, you know, James Williams, I've been quoting him a lot in this interview, I know, but when I went to see him in Moscow, he said to me, I had just, I had not long before done this period where I was completely off the internet for three months and my attention got unbelievably better and then just went to shit again the minute I was back with my devices. And he said, what you've tried to do isn't the solution because it's, it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is to wear a gas mask, right? I mean, wearing a gas mask is fine. If I lived in Beijing, I would do it too. But it's not the solution, right? Because you've not dealt with the source of the problem. We've got to get to the source of the problem. I think the evidence is clear about what the source of those problems are. It, 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 it's, it, you know, this isn't a mystery, right? It's not, oh, what's happening to us? We don't know. I mean, there's lots of things um, that we're not aware of that are really invading our attention that I learned about and lots of things we are aware of. Um, some things that big changes that we don't even realize like i didn't know until i did all this research that the way we eat has a massive effect on our attention for example our ability to focus or not um it's funny just saying that made me crave at mcdonald's but um the um, <laughs> the, um the but the, the the but but there are solutions if we understand the the problem in its full complexity and we protect ourselves as individuals we protect our children and together we build a movement to take on the people who are pouring itching powder on us all the time. And it's not just, I know that I'm, do I have you for a few more minutes? Cause I'm aware sure, that sure. we're drawing, okay. So we've, you've talked about in the book, you talk about the coders and the people who've been at the coalface, you mentioned is it Asa, he was the one who invented infinite scroll. So you didn't have to make a decision about where you wanted, to, whether you wanted to read page two, three and four of an article. And they have said, they've basically done the, oh my God, what have we done? But then the thing that I think towards the end of the book you discuss, and it, it made me really reflect on my childhood, was the pinch that the education that we, again, maybe not fetishized, but we have normalized, is another one that can absolutely kill our attention. It's not because we're giving kids iPads from the time that they're a few months old. I am somebody, I am not academic. I'm very much a visual learner. But that was I didn't discover that till I was through the education system. So I was just thick at school. And that obviously wasn't yeah. helpful. <laughs> this makes me so angry. The education system as we have currently designed it is having a disastrous effect on children's abilities to focus and pay attention. It works very well for a small sliver of children and, and those children deserve to do well, of course, um, but it's a disaster to everyone else. And there's all sorts of changes that happen in childhood that have degraded children's ability to focus. And interesting, that interacts with the technology because it's like the technology arrived at a moment when our immune system was already down, right? And it could invade us more. So you've got to understand both the technology and the way we talked about, but why was the immune system down at the moment the technology arrived? Um, and one of the reasons, there's lots of them, but one of the reasons is exactly what you said. So all the evidence about learning shows two really important things. Firstly, learning comes through an appreciation of meaning right? When something matters to you, when it is meaningful, you can learn it very quickly. You can pay attention to it for a long time. It's not an effort. But what we've done is we have stripped our education system of meaning. Um, we've built education around meaningless tests, arbitrary learning. I mean, I had a horrifying experience with one of my godsons the other day 
um, who's, I mean, I'm biased, but he's amazing. Uh, and he, um, he, he's constantly being told he's not good at writing. And he wrote this amazing little short story, he's 10. And I sent this to his teacher and I said, you know, I'm a bit puzzled about why he's being told he's not good at writing. This is re and the teacher wrote back and she said, well, if you look at what he's written, it doesn't use the following things. And she listed a series of grammatical descriptions that I've never heard of. And I, I didn't write back because I thought it'd be too much, but I was tempted to write back and go, I'm not being funny, but I'm a New York Times bestselling author, <laughs> right? I, wish I don't guys. know what those terms mean. I, I bet if I emailed all my friends who are best-selling authors, none of the, if you wanted to kill a child's love of education, if you you would you would get them to do arbitrary, meaningless, stupid things like that. He's got to have a future-based clause in the first sentence. Why? What the fuck are you talking about? You know, I didn't say that obviously because it'd be too much. Um, but but so that's just one example. There was a really interesting example where in the US, the in 2002, they basically introduced this thing called the No Child Left Behind Act, which massively increased testing. And in the four years that followed, ADHD diagnoses went up by 23%. Because the entire school system was designed around just drilling kids to memorize meaningless shit, right? And it turns out kids don't want to focus on meaningless shit. And they're quite right. The part of you that didn't want to sit there for eight hours a day learning something meaningless is not the part of you that is flawed. It's the part of you that has made you successful, right? So if you wanted to ruin children's love of learning and you wanted to wreck their education, you wanted to wreck their attention, you would get them to do meaningless, arbitrary things for tests all the time. But there's another way, another way in which this has been so harmful, which is all the evidence is that children learn primarily through play, right? Children freely playing with each other, learn how to socialize, they learn how to learn, they learn how to make things happen. This is, as Dr. Isabel Benke, amazing Chilean expert on play, explained to me, play is the core of learning how to learn, right? Children who get to play freely um, will be able to learn, be confident, and what we've done is we've stripped play out of children's lives, right? That we've massively reduced the amount of time they get to play. Um, we don't let them play outside their houses. They're, they're prisoners, right? There's been this huge transformation in, in, in childhood that, uh, that has only 10% of American children now ever play without an adult outside their home. So what we've done is we've, we've radically transformed childhood. Now that has all sorts of effects. They don't, I mean, even something as simple as exercise boosts attention we all know that you know we've cut back on the amount of time they exercise they run around it, this is madness and then we pathologize the children when they can't focus so we 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 put them in schools that wreck their attention we don't let them play out so outdoors we don't let them run around that wrecks their attention we then give them devices that are designed to hack their attention and then when they can't pay attention we say, what the fuck's wrong with our kids, right? So, and this is particularly important because if kids don't form focus early, it's going to get harder and harder for them to learn. It's not impossible, but it will get harder for them to learn those skills as they get older. So we've got, we've got to, one of the biggest things we've got to do is understand what we're doing to our children and actually put in place practical solutions to these problems, because this is really bad what we're doing. And you really dig into it in the book. And I have to admit the thing about play and I guess my parents are from that generation. And I guess people my age who have kids are from that generation of it wasn't social media, but it was media who 
told us about, I don't know, a handful in the last 20 years of horrific cases where children were kidnapped and killed. And so as a result, we have all, as you say, we have put extra safeguards over our kids, which mean that they don't go out and play, which actually say, which as you say, is a absolutely key factor in learning, focus, socializing. It's a really vital element that is now not being allowed. And if it is allowed, it is allowed with supervision, which isn't the same thing. Not the same thing. Or it's like processed food compared to nutritious food. But, you know, your child is three times more likely to be hit by lightning than to be killed by a stranger, right? Um, and that's not because we've imprisoned our children. There's been a big fall in violence against adults as well, um, who obviously still walk around. Um, and if someone said, I'm not going to let my child play outside because they might be hit by lightning, that would actually be more rational than saying, I'm not going to let my child play outside because they might be kidnapped by a stranger. But we would regard that person as crazy, right? I mean, that would you only have to say it out loud to go, that's, that's bonkers, right? Um, so we... To, to prevent a infinitesimally small risk, we, we're wrecking our children's ability to pay attention. We're wrecking their physical health. It's one of the reasons why, not the only one, but one of the reasons why obesity has gone up so much. So it's like to prevent a chance that is a third as likely as being hit by lightning, you increase your child's chance of having attention problems, just being miserable, being obese, getting diabetes. But across the board, it, it's not a realistic appreciation of benefits and risks right that it's just not um but this is why there's an amazing woman called Lenore Skenazi that I write about it's another thing where it's hard to deal with it as an isolated individual if you're the only person who lets your kid go out you look like the crazy parent right so that's why I spent a lot of time in Long Island with a totally amazing woman called Lenore Skenazi who set up a group called Let Grow I really recommend people look it up letgrow.org which is about getting groups of parents together at schools or just parents groups to let their kids play more free, to give them increasing levels of independence and freedom. That's what your child needs to be a functioning person in the world, right? One of the reasons we've got so many 20-year-olds who can't function, who are so anxious and so depressed is because they've never been given a feeling of being competent as children right we've you've got to have increasing levels of competence and freedom throughout your childhood in order to become a competent adult right and through no fault of their own a lot of our kids we've deprived them of that um so i do think we've got to to deal with this um because you know we can't carry on for every child I'm, as i said i'm 42 for every child who was diagnosed with adhd when i was seven there's now a hundred children given that diagnosis, right? Something is really changing in children's ability to focus and pay attention. Um, of course, there are some biological contributions for some children. Um, ADHD has a biological component, but it's, it's also deeply related to these wider social trends. Even for the kids who have the biological component, genes are turned on and off by the environment, right? If you have an environment that that is militating against attention for children, that's going to um, that's going to activate those genes far more. So we, we, we've got we've got to decide, do we want to be people who can focus? Do we want to have children who can focus? If we do, and I would argue we should, we, we've, we've got to start dealing with these problems mm. because this is bad. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's about knowing what it will look like. And it's not just banning phones after 
after school or before school. It's not about those little things. I think what the book really uh, points out and kind of gives some sort of structure to is it's going to require bigger things and activating on more than just a more more than just the tokenistic input that you think is going to. One of the reasons I wrote it that way is mostly because it's because it's true and people need to know it. But I also just thought people know that what they've been told is too simplistic, right? People at some level know they can see that people have attention that's deteriorating and they just know being told 10 minutes of meditation and, you know, is going to cut it. Some of the people know that. And I'm trying to have a more honest conversation with people where we say, look, I spoke to the leading experts in the world and they leveled with me. Right. And, and I'm in favor of all those personal individual interventions. They're really important and they've enriched my life. And I talk a lot about why they work and what we can do to build on them. But we just got to level with people that, that, you know, that will only get you. So it will get you a long way. It's mm-hmm. worth doing, but then you will hit a barrier, which is, you know, it's like teaching people better and better techniques to run up a down escalator, right? You can do it. But if every year the escalator is getting faster and faster, your techniques are not going to get you to the top of the escalator, right? That's why we've, we've got to have both levels of the, of the response. And I think I became, I came to understand this personally nearly 10 years ago when I went freelance, I'd worked in a very busy magazine office for 10 years and it was very much, um, you know, working weekends, working late. I mean, you were always working, you were always available. And then I would have days where I would be utterly productive and I would get into the zone and I would be on my laptop to get so much done, all my emails done. And I'd look at the clock and it was just lunchtime. And it was because I hadn't been interrupted. And it was yeah. because I had been given the opportunity to just get done what I needed to get done. And then you have to try and sort of morally wrestle with yourself of, is it okay for me to take the rest of the day off? Am I being lazy? But, <laughs> it's be- but it is because you have, you're in a different environment. And I think even for me, just seeing the difference of environment where I was allowed to focus and could build that muscle again, you realize how much can, can get done in a short space of time. And I know you talk about, reducing working uh, the days of the working week in the book as well but there's there are there are things that might seem counterintuitive that actually will increase focus and production 100% 100% so um yes the advice of this podcast is to buy the book stolen focus why oh. you can't pay attention by johan hari which is just wonderful um thank you so much oh thank you for and it sounds like an ironic compliment but thank you for paying such attention to the book and um <laughs> And I meant to read this thing, um, my publishers will tase me, uh, which is uh, if you want more information about where to get the audio book, the ebook, or the physical book, you can go to www.stolenfocusbook.com where you can find out what a range of people from Hillary Clinton to Stephen Fry have said about the book. And I, I can't read the rest of that. It makes me sound like a lunatic. But um, <laughs> you can also on the website listen for free to audio of lots of the experts that we've talked about. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, hooray. Oh, Hooray. thank you so much, Emma. I really enjoyed this. Thank um, you. Come back anytime. You are oh, always welcome. To. You've been on my wishlist right. for a while and you've been amazing. Thank you, Johan. Oh, cheers, Emma. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, 
then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.